Welcome to the Raising Christian Kids podcast. Your host, Leanne Mancini, is extremely passionate about helping children to have a strong foundation in Jesus. You will be equipped with methods and techniques to help solidify a relationship between your child and Jesus. So let's dig deep and raise strong Christian kids. Hello and welcome back to Raising Christian Kids. I am so excited. I know I say that with a lot of my guests because I am excited because we have some wonderful people, but today I'm extremely wonderfully excited (laughs) to have Greg Kolkel on the show. Now, let me just tell you a little bit. I was uh, a student of the School of Apologetics way back when, and one of the books that we were required to read was Tactics, and it is one of my top 10 favorite books. And when I teach apologetics at South Florida Bible College, my students are required to read that. But let me tell you about the author, Greg. He founded Stand to Reason in 1993 and currently serves as president of the Stand to Reason. He has spoken on more than 70 college and university campuses, both in the U.S. and abroad, and has hosted his own call-in radio show for 27 years advocating for Christianity we're thinking about. An award-winning writer and best-selling author, Greg has written seven books and has also been featured on Focus on the Family Radio, as well as interviewed for CBN and the BBC. He's been quoted in Christianity Today, the U.S. News, World Report, and the L.A. Times. Thank you, Greg, for being on the show. Uh, Leanne, I I get worn out just listening to that list there. So it was very sweet of you to have me on board. I'm glad to chat with you today. Well, I know my listeners are going to be excited, and I know I'm excited. Again, I'm just so happy that you're on the show to share your wisdom, because we really need to teach our children how to defend their faith, even little ones. And they Mm -hmm. have to know why they believe what they believe, and so they don't look like deer in headlights when someone asks Mm -hmm. them a question. Mm -hmm. So- Could you please tell me about your amazing book, Tactics? Right. Tactics came out about 14 years or 13 years ago, and that's probably the edition that you read in your your apologetics training years ago. About three years ago, 10th anniversary edition came out. I added 35% more material. And this book has been really, really well received. I'll just tell you what people tell me. And it's the most common phrase that I hear from people when they thank me for the book, as they say, this book changed my life. And it's flattering and humbling too. But at the same time, I'm I'm not surprised because the concepts there changed my life as well. And what I mean by that is it, it changed my perspective on evangelism. So I think more, to put it simply, I think a lot more about gardening now than I do about harvesting. And if the gardening is done well, then the harvest pretty much takes care of itself. All right. That may sound controversial to some people, I suggest you read towards the end of John chapter four, where Jesus, after the occasion with the woman at the well, and the conversation Jesus has there with the disciples, some reap, some sow, is what he says, okay? And the, the sowing or gardening stage is really critical if you're going to have a harvesting stage, all right, a reaping stage, all right? So, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. That's pretty common sensible. But not only that, but then the ability to maneuver in conversations to see how points of view go south, okay, and that's the bulk of the tactics, but the tactical game plan is built around a concept or another tactic that I call the Colombo tactic for those people who might remember the program that just had its 50th anniversary, Colombo, 
uh, Peter Falk, the actor representing the detective who solved the murders, because he was so unassuming and he came in under the radar and he looked bubbling and idiotic, but he asked a lot of questions. And so what the tactical game plan is, is a way of maneuvering and conversations by using questions creatively. And when you think about it, Leanne, when you're asking questions, you're not doing most of the talking. The other person is talking. And when you're asking questions, you're not making statements. If you make a statement, Jesus is Lord. I mean, just to say, people say, no, he's not. So you can immediately invite somebody to disagree with you. But if you say, what do you think of Jesus of Nazareth? You're not putting your ideas before, forward. You're trying to find out their ideas, all right? They can't disagree with a question because it's not a proposition, right? It's just a question. And what I teach is how readers can navigate in a very particular kind of way with a very simple, simple in the sense that easy to apply game plan that keeps them really safe. I like to say in the shallow end of the pool, right? But still able to make a difference for Christ. There's only three steps to the game plan. It's very straightforward. It's very simple, but it's something anyone can do no matter how much or how little they know. And sometimes knowing little is better in a way because people who know a lot, like me, we want to tell everybody what we know, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So we want to talk, talk, talk. And that actually isn't usually the best way to go. It's better to let other people talk. But if you're asking the questions, and you know this as a talk show host right here, you're directing the conversation. Look what's going on. I'm doing all the heavy lifting, right? You're relaxed right there. But I'm going in the direction you sent me with the question that you asked. So that's kind of the broad dynamic of the tactical game plan. Yes. And you know, I like one of my favorite, oh, there's so many favorite parts of the book, but when someone says, well, you know, there is no such thing as absolute. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. And children start to learn that early. And then you ask them, well, are you absolutely sure about that? You know, <laughs> and it kind of like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe there is such. Thing yeah, as that's right. Truth. That's actually two tactics working together what I call the suicide tactic, when you recognize that a point of view self-destructs. And that's what happens when people say there are no absolutes or there is no truth or something like that. But instead of saying, well, wait a minute, that's an absolute. Wait a minute, that's a truth. You're contradicting yourself, which would be a legitimate way of of addressing that concern, but inelegant. It's not shrewd. Instead of doing it that way, you ask the question, wait, I'm trying to understand, are you saying that that's actually true when there is no truth? Is that actually true? Now it's their turn to respond. And what you're going to get is what I call the Simon and Garfunkel response, which is, remember those guys back in 1966 wrote this song called The Sounds of Silence. (laughs) And that's what you get a lot of times when you ask the question. But the silence is meant to do work for you. Now they are forced to think about what just happened. We're not trying to embarrass people. We're trying to get them to think. And that's what the tactics can do. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of your book also gives, like you say, everyday common responses to questions or answers. It's a true, I call it a applicable apologetics. Mm-hmm. You can use this in your life and everyday conversations when you're talking right. with people. And children, and in my book that I'm writing, I've mentioned your book and some of those tactics that the parents mm-hmm. could use for their children also. And so How can parents prepare their children to defend their faith? Well, this is a very important question, first of all, all right? But it's tricky because as adult apologists, 
like you and I are addressing other adults or even, you know, young adults like middle schoolers, well, they have developed a certain capacity to think in a particular way. If you think of classical education, you have a, a first stage where you just learn a lot of facts. And then the second stage, you learn how thinking works, you know, and then, then you learn how to make arguments, you know, and so with those things. So if you're in the facts stage, so to speak, I'm thinking of the classical trivium right now, and many, many classical Christian schools follow the trivium. Dorothy Sayers wrote about it famously. If you're dealing with really young children, they don't have the mental tools to be able to understand how arguments work, okay? And so there's a process that one kind of goes through as the child grows. And this is why when you have children that are younger, you know, preschool, five, six, seven, eight, grammar school kind of age, that's the age where they learn a lot of facts. You, you can't help your children to defend a faith they do not have. And so that younger stage there, my view, is this is when they learn what Christianity is, not why to believe it, because in a sense, conceptually, at that younger stage, they don't have the, the resources. I think they're just, now I could be wrong on this, but in any event, it just seems to me that this earlier stage, you know, is when you help them understand the truth. This is why they get catechized. They learn the catechism. They learn the facts of Christianity. Once that foundation is in place, they start asking the, the why questions, not the what questions. That's the first stage, but the why questions. In fact, I remember when my daughter was about eight, I have a 16-year-old now, which is weird if people see me because I'm an old guy, you know, but um, don't ask me how that happened because I can't remember. In any event, she asked me when she was about eight years old or maybe nine, and she's, she's a bit precocious. And she said, how do we know that God is true is the question she asked me. So she's already been addressing the what issues. Now she's asking the why questions. And this is where it's time to start getting into more apologetics type thing. Now, what I told her is I gave her a very broad and simple concept. And this is, I, I realized when I said it, because I had to think about it for a moment, how do I explain this to my, my own kid, you know, my youngster? When I said it, I realized that this captures my entire approach to making the case for Christianity. And it's one that children, youngsters could understand the grammar stage and just moving into the rhetoric stage, I mean, into the uh, logic stage, grammar, logic, rhetoric are the three stages I was referring to. And then they're moving into that second stage, understanding how the thinking works Okay, here's what I said to her. I said, the reason that we believe God is true, God is real, Christianity is right. The reason we believe God is true is because he's the best explanation for the way things are. Love it. The reason we believe God is true is because he's the best explanation for the way things are. Why are there things here? Why, why does the world exist? Well, you know, atheists can't explain that. They got to say it just poofed into existence out of nothing. Well, that's, that's not the odds on favorite. Let's just put it that way, Okay. Why is the world look designed? Why do we keep referring to mother nature? Because the world looks like it's designed, but not mother, it's father. Okay. And so these are concepts that we can begin to introduce to people who banged the big bang. In fact, I know big bang is controversial with some Christians, but it doesn't bother me at all because the big bangers and Christians share an idea. And that is that the universe wasn't, and then it was. Right. And somebody you know, okay. created some, <laughs> some, it came into existence. And, and so here's the way my daughter put it. She said, and she slept her hand on the table. She said, if I bang my hand on the table, then I'm the one who banged it. So who banged the big bang? Okay. So now you can see she's internalizing yes. the concept of sufficient cause. I mean, to use a yes. fancy word here, explanatory power. 
what best explains the Big Bang? And notice she referred to agency. If I bang my hand, then I'm the one who banged it. It's a common sense notion. Yes. And so she's trading on that and making application of things that she's heard me say. All right. So notice how I've taken some more abstract kind of concepts of defending the faith, the Kalab cosmological argument or something like that. And I have, I have reduced it in a more simple form along with a principle or a broader principle that what ex- best explains things that we see, what expl- best explains our sense of morality, what best explains the organization of things in the world and the DNA double helix and all the information on there. You can go really deep into right. some of these things. But the whole thing really is asking the question, what is the best explanation for the way things are? And notice, by the way, I've avoided proof language. You don't have to use proof language. A lot of atheists will say, give me proof. I say, wait, wait, how about this? How about the best explanation? Because that's how science works, by the way. Best explanation, given the evidence. But it's logical. I mean, you have to put logic in there. And I know logic is a tricky word because somebody's logic could be different from somebody else's. But true logic based on truth is, you know, the best resource you have. And like you're saying, and you can simply say, well, if someone says to you, I don't believe in God, their answer could simply be our family believes in God. Sure. Well, that's a start. But let me, and this is just a little bit of a idiosyncrasy with me, I think, but I wish a lot of people would adopt it. All right. I would not use the phrase, we believe in God. And I'll give you an alternate in just a moment, but I'll tell you why. The number one problem in our culture right now is relativism. And the truth is a matter of individual belief. So if I believe in their God, all I'm saying, I'm not saying anything about God. I'm talking about my beliefs. If an atheist does not believe in God on this way of thinking, he's not saying anything whether God exists or not. He's just talking about their, his belief because the truth is inside people. And that's why you could have all these contrary views that are equally true for the person who, there's our word, believes it, all right? Mm -hmm. So I would say in our family, we are convinced that God exists. Oh, love that, yes. Now, see, we are making the same kind of affirmation, but we are using language that is not vulnerable to being subjectivized, relativized. And people, all kinds of people have beliefs, and people are dismissing our beliefs as mere beliefs. But if I say we are convinced God exists, Now we are clearly talking about something outside Outside, of us, not something inside of us, and suggesting there's reasons why we are convinced. Yeah, love that. Thank you. Thank you. My parents are, I know, they're sitting there going, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Anything else that you'd like to share for the little tiny ones? Probably. Well, I, I have actually a number of thoughts. I'm looking at the clock here and I'm realizing that we're kind of reaching the end of our time. But I have a number of thoughts about this that, are, that have to do not so much with teaching your children apologetics, because there's a time issue there. There's a, a mental maturity issue that's related to their ability to understand more complex notions and make the case, as it were. But the kinds of things that need to be found foundational, a foundation that needs to be laid to make that easier when the time for that more complex thinking comes in. And I just offered one. We are instructing our kids that it's not just our belief. We are instructing our kids that we have convictions, not just beliefs. And I only say that because of the way belief is used in the world today, in the, in the parlance, in the conversation. So if we avoid these loaded words that have hidden meanings that work against us, like faith, all right, 
That's another word. What do I say instead of faith? I say trust. I don't put my faith in Jesus. Yeah. I don't have faith. It is my faith saved me. My faith didn't save me. My faith can't do anything for me. God saved me. <laughs> and we don't. Need, and it's not even our faith. It's God gives us. But that's another wrinkle, exactly. Yeah. And so it's not my. It's it's my trust in Christ is what gets me what Christ gives me. But I use the word trust. And if I'm talking about the substance of my beliefs, that's when I use the word convictions. So I have convictions about God, and therefore I put my trust in Christ. I've avoided two words, faith and belief, that are corrupted, in my view, for any useful purpose in our conversation today, because people immediately read in other concepts when we say that. That's great. Well, we are going to have a part two to, for our listeners, because there's That's so great. much more wonderful <laughs> wisdom you have to share. And so I thank you for being on today. And next sure. week, we will have part two. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. <laughs>